Welcome to the Church Times Book Club podcast. This week, James Meek is interviewed by Rachel Mann about his novel To Calais in Ordinary Time, this month's book club choice. Rachel has written an essay on the novel in this week's Church Times, which can be read in print or at churchtimes.co.uk. To Calais in Ordinary Time is published by Canongate and is available from the Church Times Bookshop for £8.99. The Church Times Book Club is run in association with the Festival of Faith and Literature, and tickets are now on sale for the next festival, which takes place in Winchester in February. For more information on speakers and to buy tickets, visit faithandliterature.himsam.co.uk or search online for Church Times Festival of Faith and Literature. James, it's wonderful to be with you to talk about your extraordinary novel to Calais in ordinary time. Tell me something about the the origin of this novel. Where do you, as a as a former journalist, uh, an expert on Russia and Ukraine, who's written an immensely well received novel about the Russian civil war, how did you find your way into this? medieval milieu yeah i um i see see myself as a novelist um as well as a journalist and um this is is one of of many novels uh, works of fiction that i've that i've written and i i don't really like the expression historical fiction but i quite understand why people use it <laughs> it's, it's a novel set in in the past um and uh, of all my my novels the the people's act of love the the novel set in russia is the one that corresponds to um, most obviously to historical fiction before before calais so it was it was a sort of return to to that area of of a book that needs to be researched um or or i would say that you need to acquire a large amount of research and then struggle constantly to try and keep this uh, weight of research from uh, from crushing your your imagination and your and your story and your characters I mean I think sometimes people think of of research as as something that's a kind of like an, a, a support a, a sort of um, a way of making it easier for the writer but from my point of view that couldn't be more wrong it's it's uh, this massive burden uh, this weight that you have to just keep pushing off the origins of this book go back well 12 years now i i remember a visit with a a friend of mine to to chartres um just outside paris uh, and i remember talking to her about that about the idea and it was it was the first time I sort of talked about it out loud although I must have been thinking about it before then and I at the time I was thinking about climate change um and what a a terrible prospect it was for for the future and thinking well is there anything else that has happened in human history that we know about that was comparable in scale uh, and at that point I started to think about the time of the of the black death and so I thought about that some more and I was interested in this idea of getting away from the kind of the gothic horror of lots of people dying and suffering. I, I became interested not just in the people who survived, but in those people who imagined their own futures in a time when there didn't seem to be a future. 
Uh, and that tension between not having a future and, and having a future seemed relevant for, for our present situation. Uh, and it also seemed relevant for, for the 14th century, even though, of course, you had this additional complication of a world which was absolutely predicated on a future on, not on this earth. Uh, a framework of, um, of of heaven and purgatory and hell uh, and Middle Earth. Um, that that phrase, which I am so annoyed uh, that Tolkien has now ruined, um, which was the perfectly normal phrase that they used in um, 14th century England to describe the world. Um, but I couldn't use it because Tolkien has made it mean something else. Really, really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, so that was the beginning, the beginning of what turned out to be a very long journey. Um, and I say journey, that was another aspect of this, because this, this thinking about, about the 14th century, about, about the, uh, the Black Death, it coincided with my desire to write a journey book, a, a book about a group of people who make a, a physical journey from one place to another. I was interested to see because I'd never written that kind of book before. Well, I mean, that's not true. I, I did write a kind of road movie uh, book back in the, in the 90s, but um, this, was, this would be something different. I was interested to see whether having that existing framework of story, in the sense of, of um, the movement from one place to another, how that affected the, uh, the way that I made the characters come alive would it would it make it easier would it make it harder would it would it change it in what way would it change it uh, I thought that I I wanted to do that and to see how um, how it would work so I guess that was that was my starting point really I, I want to write a book about society going through this um, un, under the the weight of this enormous uh, menace uh, and, it, and it's a journey uh, and it's set in in England. And so that was the kind of the starting parameters. And, and, and then it became many, many other things and it became very different. Uh, and uh, the question of, of language came in, the question of class came in, uh, the question of, of status. Uh, and I think in the end, more than anything else, it became a book about identity. And I think that's something going to be that's going to be really important to pick up on. I certainly want to pick up on these questions around identity, status, and class. Um, before we get there, though, perhaps inevitably, given what's happened in the past few years, uh, Calais comes out in what 2019, and then a year later, a cataclysm of sorts happens and bit suspicious, I, bit suspicious. well i mean yeah. i'm not suggesting I mean, I mean you know causal relation and all of that i mean that's t tempting though it might be uh post hoc and all of that but but it's how how do you understand this book now in the light of the pandemic i certainly when i read it and i read it in the midst of the pandemic, I heard all sorts of resonances. I, I found it an even more startling read than I suspect I might otherwise have been. How, how have you received it as the author? I wasn't 
I guess, as ready as you might expect um, for um, our own uh, much less severe uh, pandemic. Uh, of course, I, I saw the parallels. Uh, I, I had read a lot about uh, the, these fundamentals of, of plague management um, in terms of, of isolation um, and, and fear of fear of infection. But uh, I think in the end, the, the parallels that I saw uh, were in this question of the relationship between your personal identity and the and the society that you're that you're embedded in, and it, it's pretty generally known, I think, that the the effect of this mass dying um, of working people in the first and subsequent waves of of the Black Death um, had the most profound effect on on society and people began to question either through their actions or, or literally to question their status uh, and the uh, the idea of a, a fixed uh, god-given order of society uh, those who work those who pray and those who fight um, the aristocrats the uh, the peasants and and the priests and People began to question this, and they began to that those who worked uh, began to say, "Well, why should I work for you if you're not going to reward me? What is the uh, what is the virtue in this? What is the value in this? Um, are, are you not are you not just as great sinners and just as much responsible for God bringing the plague on us as as, as we are? There aren't so many of us now. You're going to have to pay us more." And the whole incredibly intricate pattern of um, of, of medieval peasant society, uh, which is not simply about work and not simply about religious belief and not even about those things plus uh, superstitions and, and, and folk myths, but it's also about this incredibly complex and, and brutal maze of financial taxation duties fees rules uh, which uh, really made people's lives miserable so there was that upheaval and as we went on in our pandemic and you saw how governments were were willing to upend their previous uh, insistence that there was no magic money tree uh, and there was nothing we could do uh, suddenly, uh, they were pouring money at the problem, and uh, it, it seemed that uh, old verities were were cast down. But there was also this interesting difference between uh, the Middle Ages and and today, that as a result of the the Black Death, um, as I say, these these old structures were, were their foundations were were shaken and changed. But here. It, it turned out that we lived in a different set of structures. Uh, and I'm not sure this is a lesson that people have really learned. I'm not sure we've really learned anything. And, and I'm not sure that people were aware of it when it was going on. But it seemed to me that there were a lot of things that we did and we have now gone back to, to doing that we felt were not really shaping our lives. These are simply choices that we made and entertainments, uh, pastimes, uh, hobbies, things that we did, the routines that we had, the going out, uh, the eating, the drinking, the holidays, 
Um, all these things that suddenly were taken away from us. Uh, and it seems to me that those things that were taken away from us, that seemed as if they were um, simply the kind of accoutrements to our daily lives, actually were our lives. And once they were taken away and we saw our lives, it, it, they, they were much more um, naked and bare and impoverished than uh, than we might have liked to think. Gosh, gosh. I mean, I, I I hear the force of what you're saying regarding what has sometimes been called the book of nature. You know, that's that sense of there is a an order of things with kings at the top and, and above that uh, God. Uh, you, you begin, Calais, with an epigraph from that remarkable 14th century English text, Piers Plowman. Um, what is it? Um, God is death nowadays. T tell tell me a bit about the place of God or ritual, the divine, in Calais and how, I suppose, your perhaps particular position on, on the divine, which I suspect is not entirely sympathetic, <laughs> bleeds through into that text. Well, I'm, I'm not a... A believer in a um, in a listening um, interventionist God, as as encouraged by the by the Church, I uh, in that sense I, I'm an atheist. Um, but I, I I don't believe, but I believe in the believers. Um, I believe that you believe, and and I think that that matters, um, even if. Um, God is a fictional, or should we say a mythical character, uh, then a mythical character who is believed in by billions of people um, is, is a, a mythical character who has to be reckoned with. Um, and, and the force of those beliefs has to be, has to be reckoned with. I'm also um, very much a, a post-Christian, uh, somebody who was, who was raised um, by um, at least one believer and who rather struggles with the the absence of a way to to tell that story to my own young son um i'm still still working on that and uh although i'm an atheist i i do feel that i'm a i'm a spiritual person um and it, it doesn't leave you with any fewer um, questions about uh, the nature of of existence in the universe and more so in some ways and I'm I'm fascinated by the uh, the church as as an institution. Also, I I feel that religion, as opposed to faith, or, or not as opposed to faith, but as something as something slightly different from faith, um, is is absolutely with us, um, and that everyone is religious. Um, I'm not quite sure the way in which I am religious. I mean, I can certainly think about it, but I, you know, there's nothing, nothing more awful than some um, middle-aged man telling you about his uh, his personal credo. I mean, so co just coming back to what we find uh, sort of representations of 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 God in in to Calais, mm. uh, just to say, I'm struck by the way in which I mean, when the the the, the novel begins in Out and Green, there is the various rituals going on. The priest is at the the heart of the the community. There's a there's a sense, I think, of 
of this being significant to people, even if we as readers are perhaps looking at some of that ritual with suspicion. And we find later on priests who seem absolutely committed to serving in their communities as the, the plague takes hold. The, the remnants of, I mean, the God and religion manifest themselves in, in Calais in, in, in all sorts of ways in, in the book. Um, there is this one remnant of my original um, climate change idea um, in the sense that I very much wanted the, the priesthood to be the, um, the counterpart of today's scientists in the sense that they didn't simply feel they were um, praying and that was it, that they were, they saw themselves as having a whole set of approaches and practical means by which to, to tackle this, this problem. Um, and prayer was obviously a massive part of it. Um, and so was, so was money. Uh, payment of money for um, for masses to be said and candles to be candles to be lit. But when the the travellers go through Malmesbury, it was very much my intention to to portray the abbey as this sort of centre of um, of defence uh, and um, people taking practical steps to organise the the spiritual defences of of England, uh, as well as bringing what passed for for medical knowledge to the uh, to the table uh, and um there is this um i i suppose it's uh, it's a comical scene when the um but it's comical but also because of the the stakes um i hope quite um quite powerful where the the archers um and the rest of the of the party are briefed on the uh how to deal with the plague um by the uh, by the priests in the in the abbey uh so i i, I wanted to to portray the priesthood as um, a generally willing, responsible, as a sense of responsibility. This was their job. This is what they're trained to do. Uh, they weren't expecting anything like this, but they were responsible for, for souls. They were responsible for salvation. They were, they were in a war um, against, against this, uh, this situation. And as difficult it as it was to square the idea that God was punishing everyone, with the idea that um, somehow you could keep um, the devil at bay, they were doing their best. So that's that's one aspect, certainly the um, the portrayal of the priesthood. I, I, I think there didn't seem to be any any point really in going into the the darker side of the of the priesthood, uh, which is definitely present um, in so many ways there, because the the, the whole world was that. It didn't seem necessary to kind of step outside that world when when that was that was the world. Another way that religion and faith is is crucial in in Calais um, is the area of of confession, and I suppose that's one of the main narrative strands of the book. The way that you have this very patriarchal society, you have a group of archers who are under the control of a, a super patriarchal leader, um, but who are themselves carrying this burden of guilt for the crimes they committed in France, and particularly um, respect of this um, sort of prisoner concubine 
um, rape victim that they are carrying around with them. And, and the journey towards this kind of breadth of confession in every sense um, is, is the journey of the, of the book. Uh, there is this very striking um, instruction issued in England in the 14th century at the height of the plague, or at least in the early stages of it, um, when it was made clear, or they tried to make it clear to the people at large that you must confess at your death. And if you can't find a priest, then you can confess to another man. And if you can't find a man, you may confess to a woman. And and I thought that was um, that was a, a remarkable thing to say at that time. And um, it seemed very interesting. But I spent a, a huge amount of time looking into the mechanics of, of confession. Um, and, and I realized gradually, obvious, of course, to um, historians of the period, but I, I realized gradually how what a, an extraordinary time this was, because it was about 100 years after the church had first decided that they were going to move from a system of mass public confession to compulsory individual confession, which was an incredible change. And I wonder whether perhaps this was um, one of the great fundamental uh, changes in in what we still like to think of as Western civilization. Well, gosh, um, I mean, I, I mean, I would go go so far. I mean, danger of t- taking this podcast down. T- t- territory that um, listeners would be uh, less interested in, but gosh, um, certainly in terms of historiography, I think in terms of how people understand the self, that notion of the individual confession, um, certainly it's not just historians, but um, philosophers like Foucault who suggested that confession is this crucial moment for the emergence of, of the individual there was, there was nothing, there'd been nothing like this before where the, the peasant um, was obliged to frame their thoughts to somebody who was not a, a member, a friend or a member of their family in, in uh, to, to a priest. They were forced to kind of move their language to, um, to some kind of priestly framework. Uh, and that was a new thing. But it took a very, very long time for this to filter through. And there were these struggles to try and um, educate the priesthood um, and to teach them how to do this. And there were all these penitentials produced, these books were copied in order to try and train the priests to do this. And it was really just at about the time that the, the plague hit that these efforts were starting to start to bear fruit and people were starting to really, really to get used to the idea of, of having, their, um, having their annual confession. Uh, so it was, um, yeah, that many strands of, of, of history converged at that moment. And what you do magnificently in this book, although I think it will, it is intimidating for some readers, but what you do magnificently is you find three modes of language to articulate personalities, persons, the three main characters, Berner, Thomas, Will, and there is this extraordinary, how do I say, creative friction, James, whereby you have three three characters representing, gosh, three modes of speech, a, a, a Norman, French, a, a Latin, 
and and an Anglo-Saxon inflected English trying to talk to one another, to almost confess reality to one another, to speak themselves. Tell us more about how you arrived at that as a, a literary device, but enabled characters to inhabit this this moment where there are different strands of English utterly alive in in the the everyday. I realised uh, at an early stage when I hadn't really begun to uh, to write the book. Um, and I'd, I'd done sort of preliminary um, steps. I'd, I'd planned out the route that the characters were going to take towards Calais. Um, I, I walked the the route um, on foot twice. And I thought, how are you going to deal with this language question? Are you just going to tell it all in, in modern English? Um, and what about the difference uh, between um, these characters as, as they are uh, pushed closer together by, by this... Um, very, very difficult situation. And I realized that it was this interesting time in, in the development of English where you really had three, three languages. You had the Anglo-French um, of, um, of the aristocracy, um, which they might not all have, have spoken all the time, but it, it was the sort of the language that they, that they thought of themselves as, as being theirs. Um, you had the, uh, the Germanic um, Middle English um, of, the, of the working people, the common people. And you had the Latin, the, the universal language of the of the church. Um, and in the book, this is represented by Thomas, the, the proctor, keeping a kind of journal. So he's sort of, um, I, I guess the conceit is that he's actually writing his journal in Latin. But I render this um, as, a, as a very Latinate form of English. The Berner um, and, and her uh, fellow nobles um, speak this this very uh, Frenchified English, and the uh, my favourite of the three is the um, is the English English of the of the of the peasants, and that, that was the one that um, I could um, I, I enjoyed writing the most. Um, but they all involved massive labour and um, huge amounts of time, and I wasn't going back to the middle age. I mean, I was in a sense, but what I was really, I was starting with our English sure. and I was taking out um, the bits uh, that didn't belong to that group um, and trying to, I mean, it was, it, it seemed to me, um, of, of course, I quite understand why people see this as a historical novel, but there was a part of me that thought, well, I, I'm, I'm being, I'm, I'm doing George Perak here. This, this is kind of writing with one hand tied behind my back and carrying out quite a sort of modernist experiment to take everything uh, out of the discourse and, and narration, um, which doesn't belong to one of the strands uh, that went to make up the language. Um, so, yeah, I would literally sit there with, um, with the Oxford English Dictionary um, window open um, and, and the French uh, National Dictionary open um, and various Latin dictionaries and trying to, to grapple with a, a way of, of saying something um, in, in the wrong language to try and represent something very concrete and, um, and specific in, in Latin um, or to try and represent something very abstract and intellectual in Middle English. And to try and do all that without making it um, a, a sterile 
um, academic exercise and to try and keep these sentences alive and and real uh, and human and uh so yes it it did take a very long time it's very painful um, <laughs> it's and... very very funny i have to say i mean i the 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 earthy anglo-saxon is is outrageously saucy and salty but it's interestingly it was thomas i mean maybe this reflects the fact that i spend too much time in the language of the abstract um it's a typical clerics thing but i i found his journaling his speech unintentional well maybe it was intentionally funny it's because these these latinate structures are so rococo in places and yet that is I mean, what what I find fascinating is that these distinctions uh, persist to this day um, and academics, the uh, modern equivalent of, of the priesthood, that's still the language they use. Um, they're still creating uh, inkhorn words um, out of bits of Greek and Latin. Um, and the language of power is still extremely French. Uh, whether it's the, the the language of the military, the language of finance, property, the language of of games and hunting, um, all these, um, the language of love, uh, all these, and and the emotions, the language of the sentimental novel, um, these are generally um, uh, francophone, uh, whereas the the fundamentals, the bits that that hold it all together tends to be um, Anglo-Saxon, you know, dog, man, star, road, sky, tree. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, for those of your listeners who haven't read the book, um, I, would, I would urge them, should they do so, to no, not, not, to, not to try and see the, to, to transcend this idea of, because that was what I, one of the things I was trying to do in the book, to transcend this, this idea that the peasants are all these kind of bawdy, um, rude, um, uh, coarse, uh, vulgar people who, who don't have a lyrical eye or, or the capacity for romantic love simply because they do not have the, the, the use of of such words as 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 romantic and emotion and and um, sensitivity and relationship, but some of the bits that I liked the best um, in the language of the um, of the archers, the uh, the working people, were those bits where they were being lyrical uh, and trying to to portray um, their feelings or the things that they saw, the description of the the mast. French cavalry at the at the Battle of Cressy, um, the the landscapes they they saw on on their route, uh, or indeed their their love for each other. I I think ultimately there is something extraordinarily moving about your account of the archers and and the journey of Will and Madeline Hab is extraordinary. You said early on that this novel is about identity and and I'm very conscious of part of the power for me of this novel and speaking as a as a queer person as a trans person that there's 
a, a playfulness, there's an exploration of identity that's going on in this novel, which feels extraordinarily contemporary. Tell us more about how, for you, this is a novel about identity. Yeah, I, I followed my um, my wishes, my desires in 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 that in those in those strands. I, I wasn't entirely sure how it was going to play out in the the love stories that are contained within within the book, and I wanted there to be an ambiguity and and a a non categorization rather than let's have a book about what it's like to be gay in the Middle Ages. Um, not at all. One of the things that I, I imagine about living in a society where a whole realm of possibilities is technically forbidden and punishable very severely, um, you know, what we now call homosexuality or being gay, um, that was absolutely not on uh, as far as the Middle Ages is concerned. But, but when there's an absolute prohibition what comes along with that is is an assumption that you cannot be that kind of person and therefore whatever you do it's it's a kind of normality or it's just being crazy but it's it's not necessarily that so there's a sort of uh, liberation of of identity that comes within uh, living inside a, a realm of complete restriction and as much as it's better to live in a in a realm of of freedom one of the things about living in a realm of freedom is, of course, that people do tend to sort themselves um, into into groups and and to create hostilities towards um, a precisely defined out group uh, and to insist on a particular behaviour within a bit the in group that they that, that you're in, um, and that comes, you know, that's a different set of problems. And, and so you free yourself from that um, as as a writer if you're if you're writing about uh, a realm of, of, of unfreedom. Uh, and so there is the ambiguity of, of Madeline and Will, um, as we would say now, their sexuality, um, their gender perhaps. And I wanted to keep it ambiguous without it seeming that I was avoiding difficult questions. But I, I wanted them to be portrayed as, as individuals who were following a, a particular path and, and making decisions day by day, hour by hour. Um, and and following their desires, and personally, it it seems very very close to me. I, I am in the modern um, world of of in and out groups. Um, I, I am a straight man, um, but I feel that's quite unnecessarily restrictive. I, I think I, I much prefer the idea of of the spectrum. Um, and that it does not, it's not simply about sex. It's not simply about sexual desire. It's also about feeling comfortable. And I, there is no name for somebody who, um, who uh, feels attracted towards women, but feels a certain discomfort around straight men. So, you know, I'm, I'm not looking to, to define a situation, but I mean, there's something going on there. And, and that's just, that is just my character. And, and I think that kind of complexity of positioning um, in terms of, of gender and desire and uh, sexual identity should exist uh, with the minimum of, of hard edges. And so that's the kind of people that I, I wanted, will, and uh, have, and Madeline to be. 
and when I was when I was young, I always had this fantasy of of myself as being completely free. I wasn't free, and in some ways, I was quite buttoned up. But I always imagined that some circumstance would come along where I would simply let go. I think this was a fantasy. I don't, I don't think it's possible for me to simply let go. But I, I, I had this idea of a character who would just let go and absolutely follow his, his desires. And of course, when you have nothing like a keeper of pigs who lives in the forest with his animals, then it's easier to just to change your life from one day to the next. It, it is a, a stretch to imagine a person who really does not care whether they die the next day as long as they can be happy today. But I think there are such people and I, I certainly like to believe there are. And that's the kind of that's the kind of person he is. And, and he is somebody who simply follows his desires, but not in a way that he's going to hurt anyone else. James, final question. Uh, it is a tradition on the podcast to ask for a book recommendation. Do, do you have something that you can recommend for our listeners? Well, uh, one of the novels that I've enjoyed very recently, and I suppose that there is a connection, and it seems it, it, to me it was one of the best books about England that I have, one of the best novels of England that I have read for a very long time. It's called um, The Sunken Land Begins to Rise by um, a writer called M. John Harrison. Uh, and it's, it's absolutely, uh, absolutely a wonderful book about a group of people who are living in England today and are connected in some mysterious way with a, uh, or, or perhaps are, their identity is, is never made exactly clear, um, belong to some other group who live underground um, and who somehow well up through uh, uh, watercourses, rivers, lakes, um, the the sewage system. Uh, and there's this tension, but also a passaging between the, the world of um, the um, underwater uh, and, and the world of above water. Uh, and, and this is all carried on through this, uh, this, this world of, of, of restaurants and, and service stations and, and um, lodging houses and, and, and the banalities and the simplicities of, of, of everyday life in, in provincial modern England. Uh, oh. it's, um, it's absolutely extraordinary and uh, a wonderful book. Can you repeat the author and the title again? M. John Harrison. M. John Harrison. <laughs> Um, and is the name of the author. And the name of the book is The Sunken Land Begins to Rise. James Meek, thank you so much for joining us for this Church Times Book Club podcast. Uh, a reminder to listeners that you can read my essay about Calais in Ordinary Time in the Church Times along with the six questions I've offered to get your reading group going. Do join us next time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk 
forward slash subscribe to find out more.